As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. So happy you're tuning in. Hey, happy birthday to Dose of Leadership. This is the eight-year anniversary special birthday episode for Dose of Leadership. I can't think of a better way to celebrate the eight-year anniversary of Dose of Leadership by having Patrick Lincioni on the show. When I set out to do the show eight years ago, I came up with a list, a bucket list of people I wanted to have on this show. I've worked through almost the entire bucket list, and Patrick Lincioni was one that I haven't had yet. And finally, eight years later, he's on the show. And I'm so thrilled. He's the founder of, well, the, one of the co-founders of Table Group, but you probably know him from one of the 11 books that he's written. Death by Meeting is how I came across them, however long ago, 10, 12 years ago. Five Dysfunctions of a Team, The Ideal Team Player, The Five Temptations of a CEO, The Four Obsessions of an Extraordinary Executive, The Truth About Employee Engagement. And he's got a brand new book out called The Motive, which is the, I think, his best book he's ever written. I told him that in the conversation. He should have been the first book he ever wrote, and he even says that in the book and, and on the conversation we have. But it's just a fantastic book. It's a book that gets to the heart of the question of, like, why do we, why do we want to become leaders? And we need to ask that question because, as he points out in the book, there is a problem out there, an epidemic of – there are two types of leaders, he says in the book. There are reward-based leaders and responsibility-based leaders. And the reward-based leaders or reward-centered leaders – uh, that's not what you want to be, that we get to these leadership positions because we think we've earned it, done all the hard work, and we get to the, the leadership position, and it's, and it's a reward. We finally arrived. And as Patrick points out in the book, that's, that's the problem. And we need to get back to more of a responsibility-centered leadership model where, as you've heard me talk about on the show, we sacrifice so others may prosper. And I guess some people would call it servant leadership, and he even wants to kind of let's just get rid of the term servant leadership because really the only right way to lead is through this responsibility-based or responsibility mindset towards leadership. It's a great book, and um, there are basically five omissions uh, in the book, and we talk about it in the show, that most reward-centered leaders uh, fail to look at, and it's just great, and you will recognize all five of them. (laughs) You've certainly done them yourself. You see yourself in them. What a friend conversation. Great conversation. The other thing, too, he, great that he came on the show. He was so generous. He's got an um, assessment out there, and I took the assessment, and it's great. It's called The Six Types of Working Genius, and I found it's one of the fastest and most simplest way to discover your natural gifts and thrive at a project or work or your entrepreneurial journey. It's a 10-minute assessment and a custom report that provides detailed insights about your areas of working genius, your working competency, and working frustration along with a robust application section that's going to help you leverage that information in your work and your team and your life. It's a really great assessment. It takes about 10 minutes to do, and uh, I paid 25 bucks for it. But because you came on the show and you're listening to this, he offered uh, 50% off of that. So you can go take it for half that, $12.50, and you just got to use the word code DOSE on that. So go to workinggenius.com. You can take the assessment. Again, it's normally 25 bucks. You enter the discount code DOSE, you're going to get that for half off, and it's well worth it. I mean, I've 
kind of a sucker for all those type of assessments. This is different. It's not like Myers Briggs. It's it's even better. It just it defines the six types of geniuses: wonder, invention, discernment, galvanizing, enablement, tenacity. It all makes sense when you go there. But take advantage of this. It's only twelve dollars fifty cents. It gives you a powerful insight. Like I said, I took it and paid the full price, and it was well worth it. So again, go to workinggenius.com, and when you get to the paid part, there's a discount code. Just enter all caps DOSE, D-O-S-E, and you'll get it for a half off. And I'm so excited for this conversation. You're really going to enjoy it. It's brought to you by my sponsor, Equity Bank. They've been with me well over 50 episodes, two and a half years. It's a team that knows what it takes to start and grow a business. It's been exciting to watch Equity Bank grow into one of the fastest growing banks in the Midwest. They're listed on the NASDAQ Exchange. they got locations all across Kansas as well as Oklahoma, Missouri, Arkansas, with plans to expand even further than that. Clearly, this team at Equity Bank knows how to lead for growth, so if it feels like your current bank is more of a follower than a leader and you want to work with a bank that really understands your needs, check out Equity Bank. Go to equitybank.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Again, take advantage of Patrick Lincioni's offer at workinggenius.com, and when you buy the assessment, uh, enter the discount code DOSE, and you'll get it for half off. Subscribe, rate, and review. Let me know where you're at. Reach out to me at richarddoselleadership.com to let me know where you're at in your leadership journey. Again, I appreciate all your support. So let's get on with the conversation with Patrick Lincioni here on Dose of Leadership. Patrick, what a thrill. Welcome to Dose of Leadership, my friend. It is great to be with you. Let's, I'm looking forward to this conversation. This isn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I love this. This is my favorite part of the day, getting to, to interact and, and mind meld with other leadership junkies like yourself. Uh, just so you know, this show is turning eight years old next week. And when I sat down and made a list of uh, the day that I said, I'm going to do a podcast, I reached out, I came up with a list of about 70 people I'd want to have on my show. And you've been on my bucket list since day one. So this is an eight, oh, wow. this is an eight year fruition to me or a dream come true, I guess, whatever you want to call it. Right. So I really do appreciate you coming on. That's great. And you were doing podcasts before it was popular. Yeah. You know, it was funny when, when I started, there was about 300, I think, the number was 335,000-ish active podcasts. Now, we're over a million now. So saying you have a podcast is like saying you have running water in your apartment now. Everybody has. <laughs> Everybody has yeah, we, we started ours uh, about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And I knew I was a late adopter because I was like, you know, a podcast, isn't that for young people? You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, but eight years ago, it wasn't on my – I knew what it was, but yeah. I didn't. So that's great. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know much about them. I didn't know how to do one, and and then I decided to do one. So it was kind of funny. (laughs) I I kind of learned. I sent out the request for people to come on my show because I was trying to get more noticed in a noisy world. Right? That was kind of the the, the reasoning behind it. And then when I had three people say yes, and I couldn't believe they said yes, I said I better figure this out. So (laughs) I figured it out about (laughs) thirty. Fortunately, there's a lot of gracious people out there who have podcasts who were more than willing to open up their curtain and show me what they did. So. It's fun. Absolutely. I love it. I love podcasting. It's great. Me too. Me too. It's the, when I do a, when we do ours, that's my favorite thing I do. Yeah. It's just, and I've built a network I didn't even think was feasible, possible. In eight years, the, the connections and the, and the opportunities that I've had from doing this. And for me, it's a personal accountability tool almost. It reminds me of what type of leader I should be, right? When you have conversations with top thought leaders, it keeps you in the game, right? Yeah, there's nothing like standing up and advocating for something and realizing, I guess I better do this. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so true. Well, I got to tell you, the motive, I've been a huge fan of your work for years. Thank you. Um, the motive, I got to tell you, is my favorite book you've ever done. I don't know. It's almost like I wish you would have wrote that from the beginning. It, it's well, such I, a I great say that I sh- it should be the first book. If somebody were to look, take a stack of my books and said, which of these should I start with? We, we tell them the motive. I, I should have written it first. <laughs> yeah, because it, it gave me some clarity about, you know, when it, I think back of the handful of organizations and the CEOs that I've coached and walked in, you articulated it gave me some clarity. Of, it was that question of, well, I think I've in a roundabout way have asked that, but not as explicitly as you did in this book. Like, well, why do you even want to be? And if I if I would have had that question armed with that arrow in my quiver, it would have saved me a lot of heartache, I think. And I think even personally for me and some of my leadership journey too, like asking me the question, well, why do I even want to be a leader, right? That's, a, that's at the heart of what, what the motive is, right? Yes. And, and, you know, I think that going to graduation ceremonies was one of the things that made me realize, realize this. I mean, I, I first discovered this or came up with this concept and this model, if you will, it's not really a model. But in working with a bunch of CEOs, and some of them were were rejecting my advice, and I was like, why? And I thought, you know, I don't know why they want to be a CEO. But I would go to graduations, and people go, go out there and lead, change the world, be a leader. Mm-hmm. 
And I always wanted to stand up and say, no, please don't do that unless you you're doing it for the right reason. Yeah. And most young people, when they say be a leader, if you really broke it down, they'd say, yeah, because I want to be famous or I want people to say, wow, you're a great leader. And that's a terrible reason to be a leader. Absolutely. That's like somebody saying, I'm going to write a book. I don't know what I want to write about, but I've always wanted to just be an author. And it's like, no, you need to have something you want to say. Yeah. If you're a leader, you have to have a perspective that I actually want to accomplish something worthwhile. Yep. Then I will I should be a leader to do that. So Yeah, I think the where the clarity came in, you know, I came from the Marine Corps and I came out and the Marine Corps did a, a great job of making me realize from day one that the leadership responsibility was a joyfully difficult enterprise. And you even say that in your book, that it's you know, it, if if we can start reminding people that look, leadership is not about position title status, prestige, money, all this other stuff, that it really is a sacrificial, messy, grimy process that's joyfully difficult. And I, I loved how you phrased that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that in my arsenal, right? And it's a, selfless, it's a selfless endeavor. I think that's why I've always kind of butted heads when I got in the 16, 17 years I spent in the corporate arena, that I just assumed that people would understand that if you're in these roles, you're in these positions, that it is a messy, dirty, joyfully difficult, but that's not the case, right? And no, that's, that's where I was. But I love it. It, it. Parenting is the best analogy. Yeah. It's like if you should not want to be a parent if you're not in for the hard stuff. And before we started, we were talking about our kids. Your your daughter, yeah. your four daughters are almost the same ages as my four sons. Right. And and you know you sign up for the hard part, and it is so mm-hmm. worthwhile. It's the greatest thing you'll ever do, and it is really hard and sacrificial and painful. And yeah. you're so glad that you can do it. Right. Yeah. And it, it, is, it is the best analogy for leadership. And I think I was naive too, particularly in, in my early parts of the corporate side. I just thought, man, if you just embrace these concepts of leadership and you thought like I did, every, you know, my mantra, and it still is to agree to get everyone to think and act like a leader. But I've come to find out that not everybody wants to be the leader. And not everybody, I, I do think people, all of us have a leadership calling. I think we all have a leadership obligation. But to get up to, to actually lead people to have the actual title, particularly on the C-suite side, and the leaders that we are emulating and that we're trying to get people to follow need to be, like you said, that responsibility-based leadership. And it seems like the culture is centered around reward-based leadership, right? Absolutely. You know, so Alan Mulally, the mm-hmm. guy who turned around Ford Motor Company and who turned around, I mean, and he worked at Boeing for years, great guy. But in fact, he's from Kansas. Yeah, he is. And, up in Lawrence. He was and, born from Lawrence. And he grew up in the, with this very old school. One, I love it. You know, that Mayberry kind of thing, you know, <laughs> um, I'm going to, people should do this for the right reason. And he actually, when he read my book, The Advantage, he actually took issue with the part where I said leadership right. is a sacrifice. Yeah. And he said, it's not a sacrifice. It's, it's fantastic. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's wonderful. And it's a privilege. And I said, well, you're right, Alan, but that's not, I said, you're no longer in Kansas. Okay. You go, <laughs> if you go down Silicon through Silicon Valley and find out these people who are leading these companies, most of them do it. They basically are saying, I want to get a lot out of this. I don't want to have to do things I don't like doing. And that's my right because I'm the CEO. Yeah. And, and the Silicon Valley is probably the driest place for great leadership. Yeah. Right. Because there's so much, it, which is weird. It, there's so much ego tolerated there. Yeah. And I don't know why. Maybe, maybe, I'm sure there's a few other places. I, I think Washington and maybe Wall Street might be pretty tough. Yeah, too. politics for sure. Yeah, you're right. Silicon Valley. I mean, you look at some of these great kind of leadership failures over the past you know, decade, you know, even if you think of like Uber or something like that, you just think, you know, these egocentric kind of failures, right? When you, when you look at what happened to these people, right? They, and I'm sure they thought, hey, I busted my ass. I did all these things. It's time to reap the reward, you know, the rewards and the benefits. Right. And, and, and some of those companies are still making tons of money. But let me tell you, it's not because of good leadership. It's because of market dynamics and I even think monopolistic behavior now. And um, just because their company is making a lot of money, right? I mean, I worked with so many companies that are now out of business that everybody thought was the best company in the world. Right. And bad leadership means you're always susceptible to that. And some companies do, you know, there is the exception to the rule. They, they make a lot of money 
but doesn't mean that the people leading it are good. In fact, sometimes it's they, they succeed because they have no standards and there are no limits to what they're willing to do. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, I love that profit is a good measure often of that you're doing something good for your customers. But man, there's things going on in the world today and in businesses today that aren't in fact, they're being rewarded for the wrong thing. Yeah, so there's some, that's a whole different topic. It is a whole different topic. But I was curious about did did Alan once you kind of push back on him? What, did he finally come around and see? Yeah, yeah. He was on the board. He he was like working with some companies in the valley, and I'm like, Alan, these younger people, their leaders, they did not grow up thinking about sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That is not in there. And I think many of us our age don't realize that as the culture disintegrated. Um, Like my kids will say to me, dad, we know what you believe, but you have to understand I'm 22 years old and I've been watching all my role models through school and through media and don't believe the stuff you believe. Now we do, but we have to actually pretend that we don't because that's not. So you and I grew up watching happy days. (laughs) I mean, remember that? Like every episode, it was like, it was like a sermon. Yeah. Right. Today they grew up watching Breaking Bad. That's so true. And and the anti-hero is now the hero. Yeah, that's so the, true. You know, and the first show that was like that was, Sopranos. what was the, the mafia show? Sopranos, Tony Soprano. Yeah, The Sopranos, mm-hmm. right. And it was like, people are rooting for the bad guy. Yeah. And so how do you expect kids who grew up with that to understand what it means to be a sacrificial leader? They think that if you stand for something and get punished for it, then you failed. Yeah, I, I'm, it, you're making me think of some conversations I've even had with my kids and even some, in, even in the corporate side, some of the younger uh, workers. And when I talk about, I guess, you know, coming from the Marine Corps, it was all about sacrifice, right? I sacrifice so that you may prosper. That was really, you know, if I go to the field and you forgot your sleeping bag, I'm the one that goes without a sleeping bag, not you, right? I give right. you my, even though you were dumb enough to forget your sleeping bag, I give you mine. And, yeah. And I eat last. If there's not enough food, the most senior leaders, they, don't, they go without. Right. Right. And I love that, that concept. Not, it's not. Yeah, that's not how it goes today. Mm-mm. Do you think, you know, we'll, we'll dive into some of these topics, particularly when you look at the kind of the five omissions that most people kind of, I mean, it was audibly saying yes and highlighting on my iPad some of these omissions <laughs> uh, that I've seen. But do you think culturally, uh, I don't know, it's something that does keep me awake. I do. I just don't know. It seems to be getting worse. It doesn't seem to be getting better. Right. And I don't know. Well, here's the good news. The good news is this. First of all, the good news is at the end of the day, there's truth. And this That's kind true. of sacrificial leadership works. Right. And so a, a leader, a person, or an organization that really does this well, chooses responsibility-centered leadership over reward-centered mm-hmm. leadership, has a massive competitive advantage. Absolutely. Now, that's not why you should do it. You should do it because it's the right thing to do. But in the end, people will follow a leader who has the right motive. Customers will eventually see it. The world sees it. But you have to be in it for the long term, and you have to be in it not for your own individual gain, but for the organization. Yeah. And I would argue, too, that all those buckets that we're chasing that we think can only get there through reward-based, all those buckets you're trying to fill, they exponentially get filled, maybe not in your time frame, but they will get filled and overflowing in the responsibility-based mindset. Absolutely. And if for people that might not understand if I'm working with two CEOs or two leaders of anything, a church, a school or a company or whatever else, and I were to say, okay, why do you want to lead? One of them, one of the motives would be because I think that this is a reward. I finally arrived and got named the head of the department or the head of the company or the head of the church school. And so now this is my reward for all the hard work. And that means I get to make more money, maybe get more attention literally have more fun and choose what I want to work on and have more control of my life, I get to go first. And there are plenty of people that will listen to that description and go, yeah, that, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other one will say, as you said, no, 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 I have to be willing to do the hardest things. If I expect my people to do hard things, then I have to go first in that. And that's worth it to me. Okay. It's not fun. I have the, uh, like I say, if you're the leader of an organization, you have the hardest job. Right. Now, this is a really stark difference. Some leaders think I have the easiest job. Others think I have the hardest job. And imagine how that plays out over time. Yeah. I highlighted in, in the book when Liam in the parable, when Liam was telling Shay, I learned that I'm supposed to have the most painful job in the company. That was Liam's kind of awakening when he was working with the consultant, right? 
And I learned I'm supposed to have the most painful job in the company. And you're right. And, ha- and I think about all the CEOs that I've worked for, the ones that I've coached. I'd say the vast majority of them did not look at their job that way, that they didn't, they, that if they looked at that job that way, that they're supposed to have the most painful job in the company, that they were failing somehow. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's why this, the paradigm here is so important. And, and what, what I do in the book is I talk about how do you know if you have the right motive? Well, there's these five different responsibilities mm-hmm. and activities and behaviors that are usually a pretty good indication of whether or not if you're, if you're doing these things, you probably realize it's okay that I'm doing these things because these are the hardest parts of being a leader. Now, yeah. now, now, some of us have personalities where we actually like a few of these things, so it's not a sacrifice. Right. So that's different. It's like, but when, when I, I take people through these list of five things, I often say, do you avoid any of these? Abdicate <laughs> or, or, or delegate these things because you just find them unpleasant? And if you do... That's that's a problem. And what I always also tell people, it's not black or white. I mean, like, so I I think I should be a responsibility centered leader. And I, I've always been kind of that way, but I've slid. I've gotten oh, yeah. lazy. It's easy to slide back yeah. to the reward. I mean, and easy. as a parent, sometimes it's like, man, I hate helping with algebra. I'm just not going to do that anymore. <laughs> it's like, well, if he needs help with algebra, you're helping with algebra. And so, so I don't know, was that, did I say that to you before we began or was that? Yeah, we were talking a little bit about how we were talking about our kids and you were talking about how you had to relearn algebra and it was so painful for you. Because I had to teach it to them. I'd come home for a business trip and they'd be like, I need help with algebra. Do you know how badly I wanted to go? It's okay. Just get a B. (laughs) Right. Like, okay, I'll help you. Right. And so so we have to lean into what the hardest things to do are and that's going to help our organization. Let's go over those five because they are, it, it is, I mean, I think everybody listening to this, I know I resonated all five of these. I've either, and you're right, some of them I like to do, but some of them I avoided like the plague. And so let's go over them. So these aren't necessarily all the things that reward-based Senate leaders do, but these are probably the five most typical things that you see that reward-based leaders avoid, Avoid, right? Yeah. Th- that they admit, yeah. So let's go over these. Yeah, the first, and they're in no particular order. I think I'll go, yeah. and I think the, my favorite one to talk about is having difficult and uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, that's a good one. I have watched for the last 23 years in my field, and before that, before I started my consulting, leaders do anything they could to avoid having difficult conversations mm-hmm. that everyone knew needed to be had, but they're like, yeah. that's just going to be, that's just going to be awful. And it's, and it's, it's either with a direct report or with a peer or with a customer or a vendor. It's like, it's just with another human being having to say, to have a very uncomfortable, difficult conversation. Now, most CEOs I know will work, you know, 80 hours a week, but they will avoid and make an excuse for not going up to somebody and saying, Hey, listen, man, your behavior during meetings is really distracting and really bad for the team. Let's talk about that. Oh my gosh. They're like, yeah. I mean, I would rather they, they would rather get on a plane and fly to Europe for a conference than have a 20 <laughs> minute conversation time. with somebody about how their behavior has to change. Yeah. And I'm sure yeah. people are listening to this going, oh yeah, I hate doing that. <laughs> and you know who was great at that was Alan Mullally, who we talked about before. I've gotten to know Alan. And yeah. he had this, joyful accountability about him that he could literally go up to somebody and say, Hey, you can't do that anymore. But if you don't want to, that's okay. Because you don't have to work here. And I mean that, you know, we could be friends, but to work here, you got to change your behavior, (laughs) but I'll still love you if you don't. But you know, and it was like, how do you do that? You know, he, yeah, that's that's what I do. Yeah. And it is a critical function of, of being a leader. Right. And not to avoid those. You know, one thing I said that helped me and I hated having those too, but I, I kind of equate it to, and when I tell my, I told my, the other leaders I was accountable for developing and trying to get them to have difficult conversations, I equated it to me, me walking out of the house and I got bad breath and my flies down. My wife's going to tell me that I have bad breath and that my flies down and she's not doing it to humiliate me. She's doing it because she loves me. Right. That's how I got in the mindset of having, I'm doing this out of love. I'm not doing it because I, you know. Absolutely. And every different, that's a great point. If we purify our intentions, which my spiritual director always said, purify your intentions, then having that difficult conversation really is an act of love. Yeah, for sure. So the question is, do we love the people who work for us and with us? Right. And that doesn't mean you have to like them all the time. 
As my <laughs> wife said the other day, she goes, you know, there's times where I don't like my kids, but I love them. <laughs> right. and, and, and the problem is too often, I think we don't see it that way. Leadership is an act of love and love is self-giving. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and that's one of those things that, boy, if we don't see it that way, then we're going to go, why in the world would I have that conversation? It only yeah. benefits them. It doesn't benefit me. Heck, they might actually blame me, disagree with me, or dislike me for doing that. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but it'll benefit them. And in the long run, and probably in the medium run, maybe even in the short term, they're going to thank you for it. Absolutely. Because a lot of times people don't aren't aware. Ask yourself, well, I'm not going to tell them unless they thank me for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the long run, they are going to, you know, nine times out of 10, they're probably not even aware of their behavior, number one. I find right. that to be true. They're just not aware. And, and boy, I'd want someone to let me know if I was coming across. Because perception is reality, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what the facts are half the time. It's how you're perceived is unfortunately yeah. the truth. And so, yeah. And, and, you know, like it says in the Bible, iron sharpens iron. Right. We live in a, in a society today where people are like, no, no, no. Let's just throw marshmallows at each other. You know? <laughs> but we have to love somebody enough to sharpen them by saying, I have difficult information for you. Let's talk about this. Yeah. And the best people will say, thank you for sharpening me. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, too, as a leader, putting yourself in that mindset is treated as an obligation, right? It's not my obligation. It's not my right to do this. It's my obligation to tell you. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. So another one, let's talk about another one. I'm not going to go in the order here because for different reasons. But the next one is running great meetings. And I would say intense, focused, exhausting, compelling meetings. Yeah. So many leaders are like, you know, dude, I'm a CEO. I, uh, I hate meetings. They're boring. They're, they, they, I, I prefer, I, they'll say things to me like, if I didn't have to go to meetings, I'd love my job. And it's ironic because I will say this. Okay, if you're a pilot, yep. if you wanted to know if somebody was a good pilot, what would you watch them do? Fly a plane. That's right. And if a pilot went to you and said, hey, man, if I didn't have to fly these planes, this would be a great job. <laughs> Right. I mean, and, and if you went to a teacher and you want to know if they're a good teacher, you'd say, I'm going to watch you teach. I'm going to go to the classroom. And if you were watch a surgeon, you'd go, I'm going to see if you do surgery and if things go well. And if a surgeon said, I hate, I hate operating on people. And if a teacher said, I hate teaching, when a, when a CEO or a leader says, I hate meetings, essentially they're saying, I don't like my job. Right. And I get why they say that because they've come to accept and we all have in society that meetings are boring, they're unfocused, they're a waste of time. But that's because leaders aren't doing their job. When I sit down with seven or eight people that I'm leading in my organization, my job is to make sure I'm not wasting their time, that we're not missing the most important issues, that we're wrestling them to the ground, that I'm calling people out, that we're debating, arguing, deciding. Mm -hmm. And nobody complains about going to meetings like that. Absolutely, they don't. That's right. In fact, they go, we had a great meeting today Mm -hmm. because it's the exception. If a leader says, yeah, I'm just going to try to avoid having to go to meetings or, you know, just go to the ones that are fun for me or interesting. Or when I go to meetings, I'll just control it by asking questions that I find interesting. That's so selfish. Yes. And and people think that running a bad meeting is just you don't have the skill for it. If you think it's all about you, then you're just do what you want to do, which is either skip it or just. I, I had a CEO who read the sports page during his own staff meeting. Oh my God. When they, when they'd move on to a topic, like if they started talking about marketing and he wasn't interested in that, he would be looking at the sports page <laughs> because he's like, I don't care about this conversation. It's like, yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to be the leader. Yeah. Yeah. And we've all done things like that. Oh, for sure. And it's, and, and meetings are challenging, right? That's why death by meeting is such a powerful tool. I mean, that's how I came across you. 10, 12, whatever years ago, I used that, right? Because I, I wanted to have compelling meetings. Death by meeting is yes. has great tactics on how to at least relook how you are running your meetings, right? And, um, you know, that's, I hear that a lot. A lot of people, that was the first book that they read. That was the first, that's how I came across your stuff. Yeah. And I did the five minute, like, and I still do. I mean, I, I've, I've incorporated it ever since, even I'm not in the, officially in the corporate arena anymore, except from a consultant side. But when I was working in it, you know, the, the kind of the five minute stand up in the drinking coffee going around. What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? It was huge. Right. And people loved it. Yeah. Right. And then I'm yeah. like, OK, let's focus on that. You know, yeah. I, it's just meetings. They turn into status meetings. Right. And everyone's just giving us the uh, status. Like, oh, God, I, I got tools. I got things. We got. That's what I was arguing. I was like, I got ways to figure out 
what you're working on. I don't need a status meeting. I want, let's solve something. Let's, yeah. Anyway. Exactly. It's like if you went, when you eat dinner with your family, you want to talk about, if you don't go around and go, okay, go through all your classes. I want you to tell, yeah, me, tell me what you did hour by like, hour. Yeah, I can, <laughs> let's, let's talk about what's, what's most important to the family right now. So running great meetings is one. Of them. Absolutely. Great. Um, another one is what we call is over communicating, mm-hmm. repeating yourself. Really. It's, it's like, if you're a leader, you have to constantly, you're the CRO, you're the yeah, chief reminding that. officer. I love that. And that is, you have to say things again and again, even when you're bored with it, even you think that they might be bored with it, you have to continue to communicate. And, and that's something that a lot of leaders go, but that's, but that's boring. It doesn't tap into my intelligence. I, I'd rather move on to something more interesting. And, and the question is, do you think your job as a leader is to entertain yourself? Or do you think your job is to make sure that everybody who's in your charge knows exactly why you, your company exists, what they're supposed to do, how they fit in, and what is most important. And the best leaders in the world do not mind over-communicating. Gary Kelly at Southwest Airlines, mm-hmm. he, every time I've, I've seen him speak over, the, over 15, 16 years, he says the same things in front of employees, in front of investors, but he says it in different ways, and it's always interesting, but he's not going to change the story because he wants to look like a smart guy he's going to continue to reiterate what's going to keep people focused. And Alan Mulally years ago went to the Wall Street Journal for his second interview as CEO of Ford. And in the first one, he laid out the plan for Ford. A year later, he went back and they said, what do you have? And he laid out the plan and they said, no, we don't want to cover that anymore. That's old news. And he said, well, that's all I got for you. I'm not going to distract people. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) This might not make a great story, but all the people that need to listen to me need to know that this is still the plan. Yeah. This is my favorite one. I love this one. Um, it's something I've even morphed into as I've kind of done the show and, and gotten more mature in my own consulting. I kind of, I call it maniacal communication, right? It's like, I don't, I kept telling CEOs, the last gig I had in the CEO, who's still a friend and I still work with, I always remind him, I said, you, you got to be maniacal in this communication, you know, and maybe yeah. maniacal is not even a strong enough word. It's, and it's like everything about what, where we're going, where the ship is heading and why the ship is heading this way. You cannot over communicate it. You no. cannot, and I think that is the one of the primary jobs of the CEO. I really do think that is the most important primary job is to is to communicate where we're going and why we're heading that way. Yeah, and and nobody ever quits an organization because they they were communicated too much. That's true. Right? I'm out of here. Like, oh my gosh! If I if that CEO reminded me one more time why the company mattered, what they do is they say, you know, nobody ever talked about. It. I I I knew a guy who went to work for a healthcare company. And he went to the company because, you know, their ads said this. And I'm I'm sure when they interviewed him, they said, oh, you're going to become he was in technology, but you're going to help us make people healthier. And and he accepted the job and he was there for like a year. And he said no one ever talked about patients and health. They talked about technology. And he said so. So people go, well, they already know that that's what it's about. It's like, really? You'd rather just assume that and have people check out? It's kind of like I love to tell that story about, you know, husband and wife, the where the wife says, you never tell me you love me. And the husband says, well, I, I told you when we got married, I would let you know if it changed. <laughs> right. And yeah. it's like no wife ever said, you know, my husband, he just tells me my I have to tell you, my wife's mother told her she that my wife told our kids that she loved them too much. Wow. Can you believe that? No. Now, my wife can count the number of times she was told that as a child. So what would be better? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh my! I mean, we have a joke in my house. I go to my kids. I go, "Hey, what am I thinking? I know you love me, (laughs) but and 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 other things too. We have to communicate to our kids. You know, if my kids go, Dad, you if you tell me not to do drugs or to have sex one more time, and it's like, hey, I do not mind repeating that. Right? Exactly. (laughs) Well, what's the psych? There's there's some psychology behind that. I think you even mentioned it in your book. Like, don't you have to tell somebody like? takes like seven times until like the human yeah. brain actually starts to register or something like that. Absolutely. Because, because think about it, especially in our world today, you go to a company and every company is going to say, well, customers are always right, you know, or, or employees are our most important asset or quality, you know, that's job one. And it's <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Every dang company says that. Right. But if you hear it again, you hear it during orientation and then the CEO says it again and your manager reminds you and the CEO says it again and they talk about it during your first performance appraisal and then you do get a sweatshirt maybe with it on that and then they talk about it again and you miss it and they t- they remind you that you missed it. Then you go, 
holy crap, these people are serious. <laughs> right. right. But in most companies, they say it one time, and then you never hear about it. Never. The military understands this. Mm-hmm. We will reinforce these messages again and again and again. Because the cost of you not buying in or not being aware of what's going on is so much greater than the cost of you having a little bit of time wasted because we reminded you. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And how many times do we, I know as a leader, I felt it's like, well, I, I put it in the newsletter and I sent out this mass email th- six weeks ago. I mean, of course they know. You know I, I've been guilty of that. You know? you know, on my podcast, we will, so we've been around for a year and a half. And so we'll say, this is inevitable. They'll go, hey, Pat, what do you want to do a podcast about? And I'll go, this, this is a subject. And they go, you, you know, we did that two months ago. And I'll go, oh, okay, I didn't know. But sometimes we'll go, well, we did that last year. And it's like, you know something? If I'm listening to a podcast, I'm probably forgetting a lot of those things. <laughs> I mean, hell, I've read the same book five times. Like my favorite book I've read five times. And every time I'm like, I totally forgot this part. Yeah, yeah. So we're so worried about, insulting people or being accused of repeating ourselves that we go so far out of our way that people are almost inevitably going to forget and feel like they were never told. Yeah. Hey, we're about halfway through the conversation, but I wanted to take the time to talk about my good friends, the sponsor here of the special series at Equity Bank. Have you ever noticed that most business bankers seem to really understand just one thing? It's banking, right? And not a lot about business. It makes sense since most banks were built generations ago and now they're often run by caretakers, not business builders. Well, it's not the case here at Equity Bank. The bankers at Equity Bank didn't inherit a bank generations ago. They built one of their own. They know that building something takes expertise vision, and hard work. And over the past decade, they've built one of the region's fastest-growing banks by working side-by-side with customers, with entrepreneurs, with leaders in communities all throughout Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Recently, Equity Bank was listed on the NASDAQ Exchange, which gives them even greater capabilities to take on those big deals that growing businesses need to keep on growing. So if you're tired of talking to bankers who've never really ran or owned or built a business, And I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised when you talk to my friends at Equity Bank. Thanks for listening to this show. Let's get back to the conversation, this unique and special series on leadership and entrepreneurship brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank. Yeah, I think communicating intent is huge. Where we're going, you can't over communicate. And to your point, as you, as it becomes so repetitive and it's on the sweatshirt and the t-shirt and it's everything that we in even in casual conversations it's somehow getting inserted into these conversations if you're going to create a decentralized organization and you want people you know everybody talks about empowerment and all this other stuff if you want people to make decisions at the lowest level what better way to have a set of expectations ingrained everywhere so that when they come across a gray decision or a difficult decision there's your voice in the back of the head saying, you know, does it align? Then I can at least have a litmus test go, does this align with, with the, the core values of the organization? You know, you, you, you said something that is, you're exactly right. And at Southwest, one of the things they talk about, when you empower your employees, what you're essentially doing is you're not letting them bring their dog to work or something silly like that. You're telling them the truth with such clarity that they can actually make decisions knowing that they're going to be fine. And at Southwest, like they tell people, listen, don't make the plane late. You know, don't, don't, don't do something that's going to cause delays. Don't do something that's going to unnecessarily frustrate, you know, treat the customer really well. And don't do something that's going to add cost where we're going to have to add, increase their fare. And, and so do you know, like when, when I go up to an employee at Southwest, somebody recently said, they said, how come you do, you, do you have any milk? And they said, no, we don't have milk on our flights. And they said, oh, that's a bummer. And they go, well, here's why. See, if we did that, we'd have to put a refrigerator on the plane and that would cost more and it would make us and it would make the, it would make it heavier. And then the milk would go bad and we'd have to replace it. So that's why we don't have milk. And it's like, you know, they don't go, I don't know. I got a directive the other day saying no milk on the plane. People at Southwest know how to say yes and no to their customers yeah, because they all know it's what it's about. And most companies, employees are like, I don't know. I just have to ask my manager or look at the policy manual. And that's yeah. not empowerment. No. Oh, but I if you don't over communicate, people are not going to feel empowered. Absolutely. I love it. What else? We've gone through three. So what are the other two here? The next one is if you're the leader of an organization, you have a team. 
You have a, and it's your job, your job, not a consultant, not HR. It's your job to develop that team, to build it into a real team. And, and that doesn't mean you say, yeah, I do that. I hired a consultant. You can bring in a consultant, but you are the person that is sponsoring and driving and actively doing that activity. And yeah. too many leaders go, I don't like t- team, team building. And I love when they say that if they're talking about touchy-feely stuff, like we're going to catch each other falling out of a tree or something like that. <laughs> but when they say, I don't really want to talk about people's feelings or I don't want to get to know people at a deeper level and I don't want to figure out why we don't argue well or why we don't support each other, that is your job. And if that sounds like too emotional or too boring to you, that's a problem. Yeah. And too many leaders feel that way. Yeah. How many times have I heard, well, look, I, I mean, I hired a bunch of professionals, you know, he's 53 years old, you know, how, I'm not going to teach him new tricks. You know, he's a grown ass man. Why do I need to, you know, if he can't figure it out on his own, then I hired the wrong guy. I've heard that time and time again. And that gets to the next one, which I'll, I'll put both of these out there, which is you have to manage your direct reports, both as a team and individually. So many leaders don't want to manage. And this is one I have to say I've been guilty of. I'm like, Me too. you know, managing is kind of tedious. I've got to go, hey, so what are you working on and how are you doing? And I have to give you advice. I love, I, and people will actually celebrate this. They'll go, I trust my people. Right. I don't, I don't want to be a manager. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no, no, no. If knowing what people are working on and coaching them and knowing, ensuring that they're on the right track is micromanaging, then please micromanage the heck out of your people. But yeah. it's called managing. And so yeah. the team one is about doing it, getting in a room and actually getting naked with each other about who are you and well, how we do we work together? And are we going to be able to argue well and, and help one another? That's the part that's about developing the team. But then you also have to go manage people individually. And so many CEOs have stopped managing. Yeah. And they will say, I hired adults. They don't need me to manage them. And that's just not true. You know, it's those last two. I mean, I think, and I'm just thinking of all the CEOs I worked for and the ones that I've coached, almost every single one of them would say what you just said. Like, why? That's not my job. I know. Or they're not good at it. They feel like they're not good at it. So what do they do? I mean- if I find myself in that situation, and that's why the question is so great, right? Because if I can really get to the brass tacks of why am I doing this? And if I can honestly answer, I'm doing this because I, I do, I want to sacrifice. I want to be the best. I want to sacrifice so others in the business may prosper. Okay, I'm good. I'm, I, I want to be the CEO, but I suck at these two things. That's what I should be focused. I mean, that at least I have the awareness now. Is like, I got to figure this out, right? I got to become a good coach, right? Am I saying this right? Yes. And and just because you suck at it doesn't mean you you don't have to do it. And it doesn't mean you can't get better. It doesn't even mean it, 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 that you can you shouldn't bring in other people to help you. Right. Exactly. But it's your responsibility. responsibility. Yeah. So it's like the difference between a CEO saying, listen, I'm not great at this team building stuff. So I'm going to hire you, Pat, to help me. But it's still my job. Yeah, you're accountable. You're be consulting to me. And I own this. That's yeah. not abdication or delegation. Right. right. But, you know, I don't like doing that. So we'll do something, but I'm not going to be involved in planning it. I'm not going to follow through. And I'm just going to sit back and let it happen and check it off my list. Yeah. That's abdication. Abdication. Right. No, that makes sense. And by the way, you, you just raised a good point, Richard. And that is you should, if you go down this list or anything else and, and you ask yourself, do people need this from me? Would they benefit from me? Then you should be doing it. Because like the managing your direct reports, the CEO says, well, they don't need me to. And it's like, wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me that just because that gal or that guy is 54 years old and is the head of marketing, that they wouldn't benefit from their CEO sitting down and going through and say, tell me what you think your goals are and what, how you're going to go about those, what's going on. You really think you wouldn't add any value to that conversation <laughs> or that they wouldn't like to know that they were aligned with you and that you were available to coach them. You really believe and they'd go, no, actually, it's not the case. The truth is, I just don't want to do it. Right, right. So if we decide because I don't want to do it, that's reward-based leadership. Yeah. But if we realize they need it from me, even if I don't like to do it, I need to figure out a way to do it and do it well. Yeah. Well, it just leads to the how life-changing or how radical if the vast majority of the CEOs or the leaders of the world saw that in that way. I mean, just think how transformative that would be to an organization, to individuals. I mean, it would be huge. Well, in fact, our whole world is turned upside down 
and that is the the ethic in our society, and this is worldwide, is what do I get? Yeah. I mean, think about how, you know, ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do. I mean, I know young people who get government checks right now during COVID for unemployment who have never had a job and are in graduate school and they come from families of money. And right. because they're allowed to get money, they, they get it. Yeah. And, and like, I talk to young people, I go, well, if you can get it, you should do it. And it's like, what? <laughs> and, and there really is, and, and our society will, needs this terribly, has to reteach people, no, 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 it's not about you, it's about others. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you die and you look back and you say, I got the most with giving the least, there's going to be no consolation in that. No. And yet that is the predominant ethic. If you can get away with it. Yeah. And and now we're getting into the liberal arts here, but it's interesting to me that fame and infamy are both the same thing now. Like if, if you do terrible things, but you're famous and you, and you have a TV show, you're successful. Mm -hmm. And I'll talk to young people and they'll go, yeah, but look, they're famous. I'm like, what? (laughs) Right. That's not a justification. And this is true if you're an athlete or an actor or a CEO or in any other realm. It's like, there's people that put out stuff that's just not good, but if they're well known, we send, tend to think, anyway, I'm now I'm sounding like an old man. No. Yeah. Get off my yard. You know, <laughs> that music. get off my lawn. No, but You're I agree with kids. you. But I think that in the way you ended the book was great because I'm kind of with you. I said, like, let's stop this kind of notion of servant leadership. Right. Let's just start reminding people what leadership is. And I think, and I honestly think that's what kind of gave me clarity when I read that book, particularly that last chapter of kind of what fueled this podcast and what I was doing is like, I, I, I didn't like the term servant leadership because to me, leadership was always about, you know, like you said, it's about love. It's about, you know, I always might, I always like to take that from first Corinthians where it says, love is patient, love is kind and, and, and replace the word love with leadership. That's the type of leader that I want to be. And you look at it and like, wow, that's, I certainly missed the mark in a lot of these. I don't keep no record of wrongs and it, it's always patient. It's always, it never fails. Right. It's always there. That's the type of leader I want to be. Yeah. And, and you have to look at this. We grew up. So this isn't about us being old. This is about when we grew up, that was what we were taught. Mm-hmm. Kids are not taught this anymore. Yeah. And, and, and I will tell you that I'm not ashamed to say that this, this comes from Christ and it comes from faith. And when you take that out, people are like, if I can get away with it, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And if it benefits me, then it's worth it. it. And literally, if it feels good to me, I should do it. Yeah. And this is just so anathema to how we were raised. Mm-hmm. But my kids will tell me they're 22 and 18. And they'll say, Dad, that's not how it is anymore. Uh, yeah. So, I think that's the same into thing. It. But they, they are told that that is the predominant ethic in society. Yeah. I get the same thing. You know, I get the blank and even my, my youngest, you know, and she's like, well, I want to, I want to have money. I want to be famous. I want to do this. I'm like, yeah, well you can. I, and I show her, I show her all these examples. I give her here, here's an example. Here's look at the, what this entrepreneur did and how they made money. And she goes, I need to get a thousand dollars like quick. And I'm like, well, here's, here's 10 ways you can get a thousand bucks. Right. And it's still not quick enough for her. Right. right. She wants to be, you know. Well, certainly through Instagram or if I have my Instagram account or this or that or a sponsor, I'm like, Ugh. and to be fair, okay, a 17 year old and 18 year old, they need to go through life and they get there and pray and we pray to God that they will, but they're not getting that from the society around. No, them. no. It's like that guy does this stupid thing on TikTok. He does it all day. And we're like, don't you think that's a waste of time? They go, do you know how much money he makes doing that? Well, I don't care if that guy can belch the alphabet and become a millionaire. Nobody goes to bed at night going, I can belch the alphabet. I am successful you know i mean that's a stupid example but you know what i mean yeah i love it like i said i think this book was so fun to read and i love i love how you do everything i mean did you come up with the idea of always doing a parable like that i mean you're the only guy that i see really i mean i'm sure there's some other people that do it but you were the you know what's funny so speaking of tv shows when we were kids i don't know if you ever watched the waltons when you were a little kid Mm -hmm. so john boy walton was a writer right and he would write at the and i would be like what's that guy doing? He's writing that stuff. I want to do that one day. Mm-hmm. And I was probably seven years old. And so throughout my life, I, I was always writing, but, but I came from a relatively poor family and, and they were like, you're going to get a job and you're going to make money. So, so they sent me away to college first generation and said, you're going to study economics 
computers and uh, accounting. And I barely held on to economics, <laughs> but I took a screenwriting class in college and I loved it. Love it. And, I, and even in my first job as a management consultant, I'd stay up late at night and write screenplays. And so I love dialogue. I love plot. I love things like that. And so I came up with a theory on leadership, my first book, The Five Temptations of a CEO. Mm -hmm. And somebody said, you should write a book about that. And I thought, oh, wow. Well, I would be really bummed if I wrote a book that people didn't finish. And because I've, I have way too many business books that I've read the first two chapters yeah, and I never done. finished. Yeah. And so I said, I'm going to write a book that they'll want to finish just because they love the story. And then at the end, they'll go, oh my gosh, I just learned all that stuff. But it didn't feel like I was studying. It felt like I was following a character and I wanted to figure out how it was going to end. And as a result, I learned. Yeah. So I did that. I didn't even have a publisher. And a publisher saw it and said, this is good. Yeah. And they published it. And then they said, we want another one and another one. And you know what's funny? I wrote like six or seven of those. And then somebody said, you got to write a nonfiction one. So we wrote The Advantage, which is like puts it all together, which I love. But, um, but the fables people really do enjoy. You know something, Richard? Do you know how many? It's, it always seems like there's a woman will come up to me at a conference after I speak and say, do you know my husband hasn't read a book since college? <laughs> he reads yours. <laughs> and I'm like, that's awesome. And they say, yeah, he takes it into the bathroom with him. Will you sign my book? And I'm like, is this the book he takes into the bathroom? <laughs> but the point is, I want people to find that learning about leadership is not a grind, but it can actually be interesting. And so that's why I do. That's a long answer to a short question. Well, I love, I love too, just even the little details. Like it's, I didn't know that, that you were screenwriting was kind of your passion, but even like the little details of when someone takes a sip of water or this, just like the little nuances like that, that I suck at writing, but I mean, it just makes it, you do a really good job of, you know, the, the visuals are. Well, thank you. You know, one of my favorite things that people say is when they come up to me, some people will come up and go, you wrote that about this XYZ company, huh? I'm like, <laughs> I've never heard of that. No, because that's exactly what happened. Right. And they say, that sounded exactly like what happened. And it's the realism. I write things so people go, yes, that conversation, yeah, I can, that sounded real. I didn't, so, so some people write business fables and God bless them, it's all, it's all good. But they're like, and then the genie came out of the computer and explained the principles of marketing. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not my thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's re really good. I mean, I just, I love the motive. I want to talk about the six types of a working genius. It's a great tool. Uh, I think, as you all know, and reading this book is at the center is about self-awareness. The yeah. six types of working genius is about self-awareness of like trying to figure out where, where do you, particularly when you get in the team building phase, right? And, and yes. that's what's so great about this tool, right? Is like I, now I can see what I'm good at. So let's just educate my listeners on the, the six types of working genius and why you have it. Why, why is it a great so tool for you? This came about about six or seven months ago in a, in a meeting here in this building I'm in right now. And I was just frustrated that I was frustrated in my job. I love my company. I love my work. But far too often over the past 20 years, I've been kind of frustrated and I didn't know why. And somebody said, what, what's going on with you? And I said, I don't know. We started talking about it. And four hours later, I had these six things on a whiteboard. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I think I figured it out because these are the six things that have to get done in any kind of work. Mm -hmm. And I only like I only love two of them. Two of these I I'm okay at, but I don't love it. And two of them I'm terrible at, and I hate doing it. Right. And suddenly we realized, wait, th this is universal. And literally the next day, one of our consultants saw it on the whiteboard in our office and went and shared it with a client. And the client had tears in his eyes and said, <laughs> this, explains, this explains everything. So we were like, there's something here. And then we worked like for, for four months. We just worked so hard and, and developed this assessment called the six types of working genius. And in 71 days, we've had 40,000 people take this assessment and it's changing their, their work satisfaction. It's changing how they organize their teams. It's changing how they deal with their spouse and their family. Wow. Cause working happens everywhere. Hey, if you're organizing your house or planning a vacation or, or doing it, paying the bills, you're, you're doing work at home. And you and your spouse have different working geniuses and different working frustrations, as we call it, and different competencies. And so like we had a guy write to us the other day and said, I thought for years that my wife kind of hated me. <laughs> and now I realized she was exercising her genius, which was to help me. And it felt like she was criticizing me, but she's not. He said that was the best anniversary present ever. Another a consultant called us and said, I was working with this leadership team that was struggling 
and they were about to lose a half a million dollars in cost because of, and, and they did the working genius assessment and the consultant said, you're missing one key ingredient and that you get, and they found somebody in the organization who had that talent, brought them up onto the team and saved half a million dollars in two weeks. That's great. And so every, people are doing this. Thanks be to God. And they're saying, this explains me. Some of them are, are, are telling me, I have a skill that my whole life I thought was, was not good because people were like, why do you do that? And now I know that that's actually my gift and they're using it at work now because I said, hey, you guys, I'm really can in 15 minutes in a very practical way too. like there's the Myers-Briggs and DISC and, and I love those things. I'm a junkie for those. But this one is all about how you actually go about getting things done. Yeah, I love it because it's and I love too. I'm, I'm a junkie to those kind of stuff. But this isn't as you know, it's not Myers-Briggs. It's, it lays out, like you said, we all got to do work. We got an idea. We got to get it going. We got to activate it. And we got to implement it, right? And so that whole kind of work cycle. And like you said, you've got six types of genius. Two of them are in the idea phase. Two of them are in the activation phase. And two of them in the implementation phase. And if you find out what you're good at and what you're not so good at, now you can start augmenting, right? Or building a team. or So you can start getting things done. That's how I see it. So we did, we introduced this tool and, and, and discovered this tool by accident. Again, thank God. Um, 23 and a half years into our company or 22 and a half. <laughs> yeah. And one of the geniuses is called galvanizing. Some people are just naturally good at going, hey, everybody, let's do this. Come on. They recruit people. They inspire people. They like get people moving. They push people out of their comfort zone, right? Right. Well, I'm okay at it. It's not one of my top two things, though. It's not what I love doing every day. But because nobody else was doing it at my company, I was spending 80% of my time galvanizing and it was crushing me. Yeah. When I realized that, I found this guy in our organization who's great at that. And I said, you're the chief galvanizing officer. And he was like, oh, that would be a blast for me. Yeah. I said, yeah, it's a, it's a struggle for me. We are getting more work done in less time, more joyfully for our customers than we've ever gotten done. Purely because I realize I don't have to do that thing all the time. Other people are better at it. And I'm allowed to move what I do into what I do, which is inventing and what we call discerning. Now, that might mean a lot to your users. It's all very evident when you do the assessment. But I'm now leaning into it. And people come to me at work and they say, we want you to be in it to invent for us. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I love this. Yeah. See, that's what's so great about it. It gets people in the right, what's the old cliche of getting the right people on the bus, first of all, then getting the right people in the, in the right seats on the bus. This helps you get them in the right yeah. seat, you know? Perfect. It helps them get in the right seat. But if you don't know what you're good at and you don't know right. what those seats are, here are the six seats. No piece of work gets done without all of these six things. Now, which of them should you do and which of them should someone else do? Yeah. So, by the way, you're, we want your listeners to know that – so it costs $25 to do this, which is nothing. Dave Ramsey is a friend of mine. Your listeners probably know who Dave yep. Ramsey is. He was like, Pat, why would you charge so little? You could have made so much more money on this. And it's like, well, because we, we want every college student to do this. We want people to go to yeah, their kids. Think- Somebody said they, they put a coupon for this in their kid's stocking for Christmas. We wanted it to be cheap. We want it to be quick and, and fast and inexpensive. So for $25, you can do it. But your listeners, if they go and they do this assessment, they go to workinggenius.com. That's workinggenius.com. And they put in the code um, DOSE, D-O-S-E. They'll get it for half off. Oh, awesome. So for 12 and a half bucks, people will go, oh my gosh, I've just changed my career or changed my role at work, or I can go to my manager or to my employees and say, hey, let's figure this out together. Honestly, in in hours, people can be like looking at each other thinking, I didn't realize you love that so much. Yeah. Let's use that. Or I didn't realize a woman that I work with, she, one of the geniuses is called Tenacity. Mm-hmm. And the other people on our team don't have that. She has it, but it's not one of her, if it's not one of her top two, but we always go to her and make her do the Tenacity work for us. And she finally said, you guys look at this this is crushing me. <laughs> and we're like, Oh my gosh, we are dumping all of our tea work on you. We got to figure out a different way. Yeah. It's, it's a great self-awareness to me. Yeah. I found out my two are um, wonder and uh, discernment. Those were my two. Well, and that makes sense given what you do. Cause you like, like to look at the world and see what's going on mm-hmm. and ask questions. And then you like to kind of curate things. Yep. You're a curator. So you're like, I read this book. Oh, that would make a good topic. I would, and if a person didn't have discernment, your your podcast wouldn't be as interesting because you are really good at looking at the bigger picture and f- and drawing out things that are interesting yep. to others. 
it's a great tool and it's it was fun i mean i like i said i'm a junkie for these things and i took it and i thought oh man this is great so that's great i i, I didn't realize you were going to give us such a, a great discount so i'll make sure i'll have that link let's just say that link one more time just so people know it's the go to www.workinggenius there's two g's in the middle because working ends in a g and genius is the thing workinggenius.com then enter dose for the the code okay yeah. to get the Dose, discount D-O. try it'd be better to do it in capital letters i think it works in lowercase i'm pretty sure but <laughs> i'm not a technical i don't know but put capital letters in d-o-s-e and it'll certainly work awesome in your podcast is it going like great guns a year and a half i looked at i was looking at some of the episodes it looks like you got some what a great resource for people out there particularly if they're leadership junkies i can't imagine someone that wouldn't want to listen to your show so many great topics how's it going uh, good cody thompson is my co-host and when he and I did this, he was the one, he's younger, and he said, we should do a podcast. And everybody in the office like, oh, how much time is that going to take? We did it as a hobby, and we were so surprised that as many people started listening to it. And yeah. it's growing growing very well. And it's a very liberal arts conversational thing no, like great. this. I mean, yeah. it's about topics that relate to work. Yeah. Sometimes it can be, and, and often how work in, in comes into family and how it goes to your personal life. And sometimes it's about how to run a meeting or how to change your thought about a company, but it's very liberal artsy yeah. and we try to keep it fun. It's great. I think it's a great asset for anybody who's, who's into leadership. I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to be listening to your show. So it's called At the Table. At the Table. I also have a, I also started a, a, a smaller one, a spiritual one about called The Simple Reminder which is just for people that are followers of Jesus, it's this really short, just a, like from a non-theologian, not a pastor, just like, here's how I'm encountering my, my pursuit of Jesus. And it's like 10 minutes, 15 minutes a week. And I, I got a, a pastor in England wrote to me recently saying, yeah, I listened to all of them. I really need you to remind me. And I'm like, you're a pastor. <laughs> right. And he's like, I know, but you remind me about how ordinary people are going about their things. So if, if somebody were interested in learning more about Jesus or already is, and they want to just kind of hear a perspective from an imperfect guy like me, it's called the simple reminder. I'll have that. I'll add that to the show notes too. Oh, wonderful. Patrick, this, we're coming up on an hour. I just cannot believe that uh, I was able to have you on my show. It's again, eight years coming and, and I'm so glad that you came on. Well, I'm sorry that it back. took me that long and this is so <laughs> much fun. Uh, this is a lot of fun, and it's a true honor to, to, to have you in the Dose of Leadership tribe. How is there anything else that we missed that you want people to know how they can connect with you? We'll have all this in the show notes, but is there anything you know, that we didn't talk about that you want to make sure we get across? There's stuff on our website. We, if, if there's somebody listening that's a consultant or like that, that does HR or OD consulting within a company, we, we started something else on September 1st called Kappa Pro, and you can go on tablegroup.com, our website, tablegroup.com, and find out about it. But it's fabulous. We have 600 people that are that are learning about what we do and they're using it and their practices are growing and we're giving them tips. We're just giving away. They, so you join, you pay a little bit and you become part of this network and we love it. Ooh, I might join that. Oh, cause I know even, I know for you, I've used, I, I've relied on you for, in my consulting practice. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've referenced your book, the death by meeting I've used in my consulting Um so much stuff. I've always point people to your stuff and, and well, you know, you've Richard, helped me become a better consultant. And we didn't lean into that enough. We were like, that's great. And finally we decided, why aren't we organizing this? And we, we have, we have um, proprietary information. We do a podcast just for them. Mm-hmm. We, we um, have videos for them. We teach them things. We connect them. And the, the stories we're hearing about people that are getting more business or getting more credibility with the CEO they serve internally because of this, this stuff we're doing. I, we, we, we've been shocked by how popular it is and how much people are using it and benefiting from it. So it's called Kappa Pro. And if you go to tablegroup.com, you can, you can look at that. So we'd love to have you as a member. Yeah, I'll check that out. I didn't even know about that. I mean, I guess I did. I remember kind of seeing the Kappa Pro again, just but I didn't dive into that. I yeah, we that. need to That's communicate to more repetitively to customers. Mm-hmm. We're pretty good internally, but we're always apologizing for marketing things. Well, you're one of the good ones. This is a great episode. I'm so glad to know you. I hope we can stay in touch. Uh, you, you've just, you've really made my day. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, we need, I want to stay in touch. So let's make a point of that. All right. Yes, sir. Thanks for coming on. God bless you, Richard. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse, tell your kids, tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that those leadership brings to your world. 
Go to DoseOfLeadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together. And until the meantime, make it a great one. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.